I wonder what comes to your mind when you, or what do you feel? Because that pretty much catches all of us. Some of us are intellectual, some of us are emotion, more emotional. So you, I want to know what comes to your mind or what you feel when you hear the word church. Don't answer out loud. My hunch is when you hear the word church, it's a far, your, your gut response is a far cry from what the people in the first century thought or felt when they uh, were presented with that initial idea, church. Because in the first century, in the very beginning, the church was a movement. It began as a movement. It has always been a movement. It didn't begin as an institution. It didn't begin as organized religion. It didn't begin with liturgy. It didn't begin with tradition. There weren't, listen, there weren't any Bibles. There, I know, right? I know. There weren't any banners. Like that's, that's, just think about that. There weren't any Bibles. Because how can we have the story of the New Testament church in our Bible and they have had the, the, what we call the Bible? It's just a little sequential thinking there for you. There weren't any bands. There, you're like, yeah, I've been in churches like that. There weren't any boards. There weren't any buildings. There weren't any bulletins and a whole lot of other B words. There weren't any of those things. I don't know, just whatever. You can come up with your own list if you want. Um, there was no staff. There, were no, there was no hierarchy. From the very, very beginning, the church began simply as a movement. It began as a movement around a very simple idea. It was a movement that, unfortunately, we only talk about this, I, this simple idea once or twice a year in the life of the church, typically. But the church was launched around an event. We talk about it and we call it the resurrection of Jesus. And it was the resurrection of Jesus that galvanized those first century uh, believers around this simple idea that Jesus was in fact who Jesus claimed to be. And it was that simple yet profound uh, truth that was, that was the testimony of eyewitnesses to that event that basically launched the local church. But from the very beginning, it began as a movement. So as we kind of begin this, uh, I th what I think will be a series, uh, as we get it started today, um, I want to give a little background into the whole idea of church. So we're going to look at a Greek word together, and uh, so for those of you who don't think I'm very deep, today we're going to be deep. We're going to be so deep that we're going to talk about the Greek word, we're going to see the Greek word, we might even pronounce the, the Greek word, and if you think I'm a Greek scholar and have any idea what I'm talking about, I just read books, that's all. I just, I don't really, I took half a year of Greek and basically learned the alphabet. So, um, so anyway, now I can pronounce the names of frat houses. That's pretty much all that does for me. So this is deep for us today. Are you ready? Are you ready to go deep? You're like, yeah, let's get on with it. All right. Little history lesson. This is very, very important. If you grew up Catholic, so a lot of you did. If you grew up Protestant, a lot of you did. If you grew up something else, you don't know, it's kind of one or the other. If you didn't grow up in church at all, you just grew up kind of like heathen. Um, this should, we know who you are? No, this should fill in some gaps. Okay, can, I was here for a lot yesterday and I sat up in the tech room most of the time and it's really, really hot up there. And, and I also consumed a lot of caffeine and then I went home and watched a football game till too late at night. And so I was texting dad late last night during the game and I'm like, I'm a little concerned that I might be a little punchy in the morning. <laughs> Sorry. What was I talking about? Oh yeah, doesn't matter how you, whether you grew up in church and what that looked like, because I'm guessing most of us did not grow up in a church that looked like what we're experiencing here today in 2019. We probably didn't. Um, so regardless of what your church background looked like or regardless of whether you had no church background, like, this is the only church you've ever known, maybe. Or you didn't have church until you were an adult. I want to work at filling in some gaps in your thinking when you think about church. My goal today, as I inform you, because there's going to be some of that, um, maybe with some things that we didn't know before or it's easy to lose sight of, my goal is for us to begin to rethink church and to rethink our thinking about church and maybe even redefine in our hearts, at, at maybe even at an emotional level, what the church is all about. Because at the end of the day, the church launched as a movement, regardless of whether you're a part of this or not, the church is actually still moving. Here's a fascinating sort of academic part of this. You're like, fascinating academic, no? In the Greek New Testament, the little word that's translated church 
if you were to read your Bible and read the New Testament, whenever you run across the word church, it's a translation of a Greek word. We're going to put the word up on the screen for you. It's the word ekklesia. So let's just, it's a cool word. I love how it kind of rolls, ekklesia. And I think we should say that together as our Greek 101 this morning, ekklesia. So let's say it together, one, two, three. Ekklesia, man, a room full of Greek scholars. That's really impressive. So uh, I know. Literally, the little Greek word ekklesia actually means an assembly or a gathering. That's what it means, an assembly or a gathering or even congregation. And you know congregation is not a religious word. Did you know that? Like to congregate does not mean that you're necessarily religious. It's just a gathering of people. And throughout the Greek New Testament, you see this little word ekklesia, and it literally means, you can look it up, you can Google it right now if you want, just if you want to do some fact checking. It simply means a congregation, a gathering, or an assembly. And when Jesus launched the church, he launched it, as we're going to see in a few minutes from Matthew, he launched it as a gathering around one simple idea with a simple mission, with a very simple focus. It was a gathering and it was a congregation. So, but then something um, kind of terrible happened in history. Something terrible happened with the, the uh, direction of the church. And as time went by, there was a transition from the idea of a movement to the idea of a location. From gathering around an idea to a hierarchy. From a dynamic around a simple message and a profound event in history, the resurrection. And then things began to transition to something entirely different. And if we know any church history at all, and some of us enjoy studying that kind of thing, if you know any of that at all, any medieval history even, you know that the church went through a terrible, terrible, embarrassing time where everything was wrong with the, the local church. And this horrible, dark period of history that launched in some way, shape, and form, it was launched by a misunderstanding of the term church. Because a little Greek word that couldn't really be any clearer, ekklesia, was transitioned into a different word. And I want to show you this word I'm going to put up on the screen. It's actually uh, a Greek word. And it's pronounced something like kish. Not quiche, that's a different language. Kirch. It's the English derivative of this German word where we get the word church. And this word came uh, from the Goths around 300 AD. It's where we get our English word for church. And it literally meant, in 300 AD, it literally meant the Lord's house. We tend to think of that as a capital L, Lord's house. But that's not what it meant in the original German use of it. It was just a German term that was for any gathering. And it, was a ga it really was specifically defining a gathering place for people, sometimes of a certain faith, um, the Lord's house. And I'm not going to bore you with all the history anymore, um, but essentially over time, in fact, pretty quickly uh, after the time of Christ, within 300 years, which is in a span of 2,000 years of church history, that's pretty quick. The idea of gathering and a movement and an assembly and a congregation gathered around a simple idea and on a simple, straightforward mission, it transitioned to this idea where we get the English word church. So throughout the English New Testament, the little Greek word ekklesia, which means gathering, movement, congregation, is translated church. You can see there's no relationship at all between the idea of a movement and the Lord's house. Let me just say, the reason your kids shouldn't run in this space has nothing to do with it being the Lord's house. I mean, people used to roller skate in here. Amen. How, you know. Amen. And, that, well, we aren't going to talk about the drinking beer part, but, um, or how, or how if you remember that part of this building's history. Um, the reason your kids shouldn't run here because it's concrete floor and someone's going to take a header. That's why, that's why your kids shouldn't run in here. It has nothing to, and so when you say, don't run in church, it has nothing to do with it being in church. You can't run in church. That doesn't even make sense. We're the church. Anyway. Hmm. I was talking about that, and then I got talking about this, and then I lost. Oh, yeah. So uh, it hasn't... <laughs> uh. This idea of the Lord's house was a throwback to Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, the Lord had a central place that represented his presence. Started in the tabernacle with Moses. And then it transitioned under Solomon, it transitioned to the temple. Because in Israel there was a temple. It was, it was what represented the physical presence of God. And people, the people of God gathered in the temple because God lived in the temple. And it, that's not necessarily true, but it's kind of how they, they thought. And this, this Horrible linguistic transition resulted in some really bad theology. This is why I'm convinced that words matter. 
because it was, a, it was a linguistic thing that changed their theology, not the other way around. It's not like, oh, we think differently about God. We think God is relegated to a box now, so let's change our theology. Uh, or let's change the words we use. No, they started using different words that then affected their theology. So before long, the church was located in a building. And whoever controlled the building controlled the church. And whoever controlled the, the building controlled the scripture. And whoever controlled the building controlled the people. And in some segments of Europe, as you know, whoever controlled the building and controlled the scripture and controlled the people controlled the government. And over time, what began as a movement of distributing this awesome truth throughout the world through a very, became a very insider-focused kind of deal, a hierarchical, ritualistic, some cases even pagan-influenced, immoral, destructive, unethical movement that had absolutely no reflection of what happened in the first century at all when the church was first launched. And what came as a result of a linguistic change or shifting from ecclesia, which is gathering, movement, congregation, to the idea of location resulted in some things that are really embarrassing for the church. It's part of the reason why some people continue to turn their back on the church. In fact, the same uh, idea that began around 300 AD is still reflected in thinking today about the local church and the church in general. But then something awesome happened. In the 16th century, in the early 1500s, a guy shows up in England. He was a scholar. His name was William Tyndale. You ever heard that name, William Tyndale? How many of you have ever heard? So I'm just wondering who the churchy people are. Okay. Um, he, we got a picture of him. He's a fine-looking man. And uh, we got a... Yeah, so William Tyndale was uh, an English author and scholar. He was a linguistic scholar specifically. He decided it was time... In the 16th century, it was time for the average person to have access to the Bible. We don't even, we can't get our minds around this. We just can't. You've got more Bibles than you can count. You've probably got a Bible in every room. You've got stacks of them somewhere. You might have, you have, I don't know how many versions of the Bible you have on your mobile device right now that's in your pocket or in your lap or whatever. We have instant access to the Bible, so we can't even get our brain around that. But in this day and age, in the 16th century, people had to go to church and they had to listen to a priest read from a translation of scriptures that nobody understood. And no one had access to truth. Because if you control the Bible, you control the truth. And if you control the Bible, you control the church and you control the people. And William Tyndale decided enough of this. The, the, the people, the English people specifically in his case, they need to have access to the truth of God's word. And he began to translate. He was the first person to do this. He began to translate from the original Hebrew and Greek text into English. And the church leaders, you'd think they'd be ecstatic, right? They were not happy about this. He became uh, an outlaw. In fact, he was, he was forced to flee for his life to leave England. He ended up in Germany, where he continued to do his translation. Thanks to Gutenberg, who lived about 100 years before William Tyndale, he began to print his copies of the New Testament, and he smuggled them into England. And suddenly, the average person in England had a copy. Not a handwritten copy of Scripture, which was extremely expensive. No one could really even afford those. And suddenly the English people, they could hold the entire New Testament, and in some cases the entire Bible, in their hand, in a language they could understand. Tyndale, the rest of his story is, is he, he's eventually betrayed by a friend, brought back to England, tried for being a heretic. You're wondering why did he only live, you know, why was his life so short? Look at his, the dates. Well, they uh, hung him and then they burned his body and discarded him as a heretic and an enemy of the church and an enemy of the state. But it was too late because the word was out. English-speaking people had a copy of the scripture. And the church, the institutional church, the church that thought in terms of location and thought in terms of control of people began to lose its power because the average person actually could hold a copy of the scriptures themselves. During his trial, Tyndale made a, a statement. He, it's one of his famous quotes. He said, if God spare my life many years, I will cause a boy that drives the plow to, do, to know more of the scriptures than you do, he said to the leaders of the church. He accused them of manipulating the scripture and thereby manipulating the people and manipulating the church in order to control the people, to control political policy. And he said that if it's left up to me, I'll make sure that everybody holds in their hands and is able to read the holy scriptures. And one of the things that drove the people of his day absolutely crazy is that as... Uh, William Tyndale was translating the scriptures. When he got to the little word ecclesia, 
He didn't translate it church. The German version of the word that basically meant the Lord's, meant the Lord's house. In his copy of the New Testament, when he got to the word ecclesia, he put the word congregation. Because that's what the word means. It was his attempt to return the New Testament and to return the gathering of God's people back to what it was meant to be. What, started, what it started off as in the first century, a growing, multicultural, multi-ethnic, mission-centered movement with a very simple message for everyone in the entire world, everyone around one single event in history, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Tyndale was exactly right, that the church is actually a gathering of a growing group of people. This is exactly what Jesus said in the book of Matthew. There's an incident where Jesus gathers his disciples together and he asks them a question that you shouldn't ask your friends. I don't recommend this because you may get information you're not ready for or fond of. He gathers his group together and they've spent some time together now and they're, they're pretty tight and they know each other well. And he said, what's the word on the street about me? Who do people say that I am? When people talk about me and they talk Jesus talk, what do people say? What are they saying, guys? What are you hearing? So his disciples say, well, some people think you're a reincarnated John the Baptist. Those are people who remembered John the Baptist just from a few months before. Somebody else says, yeah, well, some people think you're like a reincarnated, because they had this big, I guess, a common belief about reincarnation, apparently. And they did. Some people think you're a reincarnated version of some Old Testament prophet, maybe Elijah. But Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, says this. He says, I'll tell you who I think you are. Like, I know that's not the question you're asking, but I'm going to tell you who I think you are. I think you're the Messiah. I think you're the Son of the living God. And Jesus says this. There's, look at this in Matthew chapter 16, verse 17. Jesus replied to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. That's his given name. For this, this statement that you made, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, that I am the Messiah, this statement was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I'm telling you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my, there's our, there's our word, I will build my ecclesia. I'll build my not church building, not gathering place. I'll build my, I'll build my ecclesia. I'll build my gathering of people, my congregation, my assembly, my movement. I'll build my church, the gates of death, your translation may say the gates of hell or the gates of Hades or whatever it says, it's the realm of the dead, will not overcome it. So no matter what happens, no matter how bleak the future looks, no matter how many people die and no matter who dies, this will continue on forever and ever and ever because the church was birthed as a movement of people around a simple message and around a simple idea. And it was not about a building. It was not about any of the things that it would quickly become about in just a few hundred years that followed. It would be a movement. Not too long after this declaration, Jesus was crucified. He rose from the dead. He spent about 40 days with his followers after that. And after about 40 days, he gathers them on a hillside and he gave them his final instructions. In Matthew, we call it the Great Commission. Um, in the book of Acts, there's a version of that where Jesus gives them the final instructions and he predicts, and this is pretty cool, he predicts the beginning of the church. He's already said that on this idea, on this idea that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, on this premise, I'm going to launch this movement. I'm going to launch this multiplying movement and gathering of people. But just before he leaves the planet, he gathers with the 11 disciples. Mary was there. His brothers were there. Probably some, some of his sisters too and about 100 other people. And he gathers them on a hillside and here's what he says to them in Acts chapter 1 verse 6. So, so when they gathered together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to, to, to Israel? They weren't thinking in terms of a growing, gathering, multicultural, multi-ethnic thing that we would call the church. They were thinking that Jesus was going to establish a literal, physical, political kingdom. Verse 7, he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father set by his own authority. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And I don't know what they thought when they heard him say power. Because, like... To them, power is a good thing. They had no power in a Roman-occupied Palestine. They had no power. So like, oh, we got power. This is good. All right, finally. We're finally going to get some kind of power. Sounds like it's going to be a special kind of power. So this is what we're trying to get to, Jesus. Yes, tell us about this. What are you supposed to do with this special power? And he says, and you will be, as a result of this new power, you'll be my witnesses 
little Greek word that means basically the same thing that we think about, a witness, say like in a court, somebody who will testify to something, somebody who will accurately, accurately represent an event or somebody who will actually represent uh, you know, what happened in the past. He said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where they were, in Judea, which was a broader area, in Samaria, which was an area they didn't even want to go to, and to the ends of the earth. Now, we don't know what they thought, but if we can just try to imagine this, you're standing with a man who Rome crucified. The religious leaders hated him. There's about a hundred of you, so, you know, a, a gathering about the size of this room. And he says, hey, here's what's going to happen. You're going to take the message of me. You're going to take my teaching. You're going to take the fact that you were eyewitnesses of the resurrection, and you're going to take this message all over Jerusalem. And they're looking at each other like, okay, Jerusalem. We can do Jerusalem. Yeah, we could see that happening. Yes, we, could, we can strategize this. We can figure it out. Oh, and Judea. Like, okay, it might take a little more effort. And Samaria. It's like, we don't even like those people. And the rest of the world. And then no doubt they looked at each other, and they're like, the rest of the world? First of all, Jesus, do you know how big the world is? To which Jesus would have said, you don't even know how big the world is. So, yes, I do. And uh, all you know is the Roman world. But the message, this movement, this gathering, this momentum that we're creating is going to touch every single part of the world. Brand new paradigm for them, but it's exactly what happened. This is one of the most significant prophecies in all the Bible because we are in some way fulfillment. You never thought of yourself as fulfillment of prophecy, did you? I think that's pretty cool. And then Jesus departed. And this little group of 100, 120 uh, people went back into the city of Jerusalem and they began to pray together. They met together. Um, they prayed together some more. And about two weeks later, something amazing happened. Two weeks later was a Jewish celebration of Pentecost. And Pentecost as a celebration, as a festival, was where Jewish people and converts of Judaism gathered in the city of Jerusalem. It's a, it was kind of like that they came together to celebrate Passover and they also came together to celebrate Pentecost. And uh, we find out later in the book of Acts that there were Jewish people and converts to Judaism from, from about a dozen different regions all over the known world. And people were basically from all over the known world were, had gathered there, and Jerusalem is full of people from different parts. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a large festival where there's people from all over the world, but just that's what this looked like. Scripture tells us that while they were meeting, while the 100 or 120 people were meeting, and, you know, picture it. Mary's there, Jesus' brothers are there, the, the disciples are there, they're praying together, and suddenly on the, the day of the celebration of the observance of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit shows up in their midst in a powerful, powerful way, not at all as they were expecting, but just as Jesus predicted. And the manifestation and the overflowing of the Holy Spirit manifested itself in such a way that these individuals, these followers of Jesus, suddenly were able to speak the language of all these people who had gathered in Jerusalem for, on that particular day for that particular festival. And they went out and they're like, T -t -t I I'm sure in that room they had no idea what was happening. So they're like, let's go out in the city and see what happens. And they began to talk to people from all over the world in their own language. And the people from all over the world who'd come to celebrate this feast looked at these Galileans and they're because they'd been here before, you know, and they were like, this is something new. And then according to the book of Acts and Luke investigated all this and, and put it all together for us. Here's how they're they like, how can you speak my language? You're a Galilean. Then they recognize another Galilean was speaking to somebody else from a different region of the world in their language. And all of a sudden, in the city square in the middle of Jerusalem, there's all this energy, there's all this turmoil, all this excitement, all this conversation. How is it that these Galileans, who don't appear to be educated men, how is it they're able to speak our language? And, and what is this strange and mysterious thing that they're even talking about? This, this, there was this Jesus, this Messiah has come, but he, that he was crucified, that he was raised from the dead. What's happening here? And suddenly there's this stir in Jerusalem. And the significance of it was not in a single language. And it was not for a single people. It was multinational. It was multi-ethnic. It was multicultural. It was, it was just as Jesus had predicted. And so things begin to ramp up. And as people begin to gather and talk and wonder, some people thought they were drunk, which I don't understand that. I've never known anybody who's drunk able to speak a language all of a sudden. But they were, they were that just doesn't even make sense. And Peter decided it was time for the very first sermon in the church because this was the day the church was born. And Jesus predicted it. He described it was going to be a gathering. It was going to be an ecclesia. And now they're all gathered together. And Peter stands up on some steps or somewhere where people can see him, where his voice can be heard. And he begins to preach the very first sermon on the very first day, the opening day of the church. And he draws back to the only scripture they had, the Old Testament context that many of the, this is what the Jews understood. And he says, this thing that's happening among you was predicted in the scripture. 
And he quotes what we know as Old Testament scripture to say that you shouldn't be surprised. God predicted that one day the message that had been given to the Jews would be expanded. It would be a message to the entire world. I know you guys skipped over that part because you weren't crazy about that part of it, but it was predicted and now it's happening. And he launches into this part of the sermon. Here's what he said in Acts 2 verse 22. He says, fellow Israelites, this is Peter speaking. He's speaking to all these people who are just mystified by the fact that all these Galileans are speaking all these languages. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. In other words, God proved to you that he was who he said he was by the miracles and signs that he performed, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. You know this because you saw it with your own eyes. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. This is not typical uh, like uh, homiletics, a study of sermon preparation. You don't typically start off your sermon accusing them of, creating, of, of committing a crime, um, but this is how Peter starts it. He's basically recalling some very recent history that nobody could dispute. This is only about two months after the resurrection, uh, two months after the crucifixion and that whole scene in the resurrection. So when he says, Jesus of Nazareth, many of the people in the audience are like, oh yeah, I, I was there for that. I saw him. I saw him perform some miracles. I was there. I tasted the... the fish and the bread those, and all that. And I was there and, and oh, and then I saw them, I saw him drag his cross down the street and I saw them beat him within an inch of his life. And I saw him when he was crucified. I know some of his followers and I heard the stories about the resurrection and that they'd spent time with him after he was risen from the dead. And, and uh, so, yeah, I know who you're talking about. This isn't just history, it's recent history. He says, you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross, verse 24. But God... God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So basically, he just preaches the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Verse 32, jump all the way down to 32. And now God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. All of us who are speaking these languages that we didn't know this morning when we woke up, we're witnesses of the resurrection. God's raised this Jesus to life and we're witnesses of the fact we were there. We're not simply giving, uh, recounting something that, what, that we were told. We're not simply recounting the teachings of Jesus, even though those are pretty cool. That's really not the basis of what we're talking about. We're not just repeating his teachings. And if you're new to Christianity or maybe you're not a Christian or you're trying to figure it out, uh, this is such an important part of understanding what the Christian faith is all about. These first century uh, believers were not simply teaching what Jesus taught because Christianity isn't about embracing a teaching. Christianity from the very outset was about embracing an event in history. He said, we are witnesses of the fact that he was crucified. A lot of people saw that. We're witnesses of the fact that he came back to life. And a lot of people saw that too. And they're like, they're like yeah, it wasn't that long ago. We remember. It wasn't like years ago. It wasn't like, yeah, I remember when I was a kid. I heard no, it was two months ago. We're witnesses of these things. Verse 33, he goes on. He says, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. This whole thing's from God. Verse 36, therefore let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus, who you crucified, God's made this Jesus, and he's pointing his finger at the Jews in Jerusalem, God's made this Jesus who you crucified. Some of you were there, some of you accused him, some of you walked away from him, some of you were there and didn't defend him. God's made this Jesus who you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, and a hush fell over the crowd in Jerusalem. And finally, somebody cries out in verse 37 and says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. Ever been cut to the heart? You know what, you know what they were experiencing. And said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Because we remember, yeah, yeah, we remember, we saw, we were there, we know, and now, but now it's kind of too late because Jesus is gone. And like, what now, what do we do? And Peter replied, easy, attend church every Sunday. Just go to church. It's what you got to do. It's what good Christians do. No. This is opening day of the church. This is opening day. That dynamic, that excitement, that sense of wonder and awe. It's opening day of the church. And for many of us, when you think church, you don't... Don't you, don't you think attend church? Some of you decided this morning, well, I'm going to go to church. Some of you decided last night, I'm going to go to church tomorrow. I need to get back in church. I need to get my family in church. My kids need to go to church. I'm telling you, on opening day, those words just wouldn't even make sense because the church was a gathering of people. It was a multiplying gathering around a single message and a single event that happened in a sim simple, profound mission. There's momentum. 
there's a dynamic, there was a message that was to spread throughout the entire world. Here's what Peter actually said in response to what shall we do. Here's what he said in verse 38. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And here's the promise. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Do you know who the all who are far off is? That's right, you and me. All who are far off, that's Peter's way of saying, this isn't just a Jerusalem thing. This isn't just an us thing. This isn't, this thing that's begun in our midst, this message, this momentum, this idea, all the supernatural power that we're experiencing today, this whole thing, it, it's not just, it's for us and it's for our descendants, it's for our children and for generations to come and for, and for all those who are far off, for those who are far off geographically, living in places that we don't even know exist, all who are far away chronologically, they'll exist in hundreds of years from now. This is something that can reach beyond our lifetime because remember Jesus said the gates of hell or the gates of death, the realm of death will not stop it. That this, this generation is going to die, but the momentum is going to continue on from there. This generation will die, but the church will continue to thrive. This is a multi-generational message. This is an event that's going to touch people who are far off, who haven't been born yet, in places that we don't even know about yet. He says, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And then they had their first altar call. Some of us grew up in churches where we had altar calls. Have you ever seen an altar call? How many of you ever seen an altar call? You know what I'm talking about. How many of you ever responded to an altar call? Uh, come on. Um, that's fine. That's just a thing that we did. <laughs> Sing a hymn. You know what I mean by that, right? What a hymn is. And uh, they didn't, we'd sing a hymn. What did you say? Just as I am? Typically, yeah, that's the most effective one. It has five verses. We sing it 27 times. They didn't sing a hymn. They didn't have to. There was just so much Holy Spirit energy. There was so much passion. There was so much conviction. There had been so many miracles as people had been speaking these languages. And here's how the crowd uh, responded. Verse 41. It says, those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. Don't read past that too quickly. 3,000 people. Think about the last time you were in a crowd of 3,000 people. 3,000 people in Jerusalem who had heard of or witnessed the life of Jesus and the works of Jesus. 3,000 people who could have said, time out, because like, uh, I'd like for some people to follow me because I can show you where he's buried because I don't know what you're talking about. Time out, I can take you where his body is. They'd be surprised when they got there, but... In the very city where Jesus was crucified, in the very city where he rose from the dead and appeared to over 500 people over 40 days, over 3,000 people said, we believe. And those 3,000 people became the church on day one. And they were baptized. You ever thought about how long it would take to baptize 3,000 people? First of all, that's a lot of video editing for some of us. So <laughs> that's a lot. And uh, yeah, 3,000. Um, it took us like 14 minutes to baptize five people a couple weeks ago. So do the math. No, I, I, don't, I don't think it looked much like that. But for day, literally it would take days. It would take days to baptize 3,000 people. I kind of think maybe someone was baptized and then they turn around and baptize the next person. I kind of think that's probably how it worked. And probably every body of water that they could find baptizing people. Can you imagine that? 3,000 people suddenly converting to Christianity. You're like, no, I can't. Okay, then this message isn't for you. It's okay, just tolerate the rest of this. Now, think about that. Yeah, Jerusalem's a big city. Even at this point, it's probably a half a million or more. The impact of 3,000 brand new followers of Jesus. And from the very beginning, the church has been big. This thing we're a part of is really big. Because it's bigger than this. It's bigger than us. It's bigger than a single event. It's got big momentum. It's a big message centered around a big event. I know some of you don't like big things. You don't like big churches. You don't like big crowds. That's, that's fine. I understand that and I respect that, but you would have been really uncomfortable opening day of the church uh, in Jerusalem. You, you, you might not enjoy heaven, just want you to get ready for that, but I think you'll probably have a smaller, you know, just a table of four people, then you can do your thing. And that's great. That's, that's what you like to do. You're a, you're, you like intimacy with small groups of people. That was not in my notes. I don't know where I'm going with this, but here's, here's the thing. Opening day of the church was dynamic. 
It was powerful. Thousands of people embraced this message. Thousands of people said, we believe that Jesus was, he is the Christ because he's risen. He is the Christ. He's the son of the living God. He is everything that he said he was. He's, we know he was crucified by Rome. And with our help, we acknowledge that, Peter. You're right. With our help, he was crucified. And he rose from the dead. And we believe, Peter, and we believe you. We believe you and your friends that you're eyewitnesses of this. We, so we repent of our sins. We want to be baptized. This, we want to be part of this brand new gathering, this congregation that would eventually become known as the church. And just like Jesus said, just like he predicted 2,000 years later, here we are. Oh, and also, I don't think the best days of the church are behind us. I just don't think Jesus operates that way. Do you know what Protestants and Catholics and people from every culture around the world who name the name of Jesus, do you know what the common denominator is? It's certainly not the way that we come together to worship, is it? I mean, just in our town alone, there's about 42 different ways to come together to worship. It's not the way that we think in terms of liturgy. It's not our customs and our traditions. That's not the, it's not even the way that we baptize or the way that we do communion. We, we don't even always agree on these things within our own church, okay? So it's, that's not the thing that is the common denominator. The, th- the only thing that galvanizes, the only point of common ground, the only thing that we have in common, and the only thing that really, really matters, if you take every single believer from every single culture all over the world, all throughout, down through history, there's only one thing that we have in common, that we believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of the living. God, that he rose from the dead, that his death paid for the sins of the entire world and reestablished our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And just as Jesus had predicted, there was an energy, there was a dynamic, there was a momentum, there was a movement, and the world would never ever be the same. Here's what's so cool. Since opening day, since day one, there's always been a group of people who understand that this is a movement that must move. This is a dynamic that must spread. This is a message that has to touch down in every single region of the world, in every culture, in every single language of the world. And since day one, there have been missionaries. There have been Bible translators. There have been evangelists. There have been Bible smugglers. There have been preachers. There have been people who serve. There have been people who take care of people in Jesus' name. There have been people who care for the poor in Jesus' name. For every generation, there's always this group who's understood that church is not a location. Church is not a hierarchy. Church is not an event, that scripture is for all people. There have always been people like William Tyndale who've said, I'm willing to give my life in order to put the scripture, the story of Jesus, the story of the church into the hands of common people so they can read it and say, wow, look what God has done. I want to be a part of that. There's always been a group that said, we're not going back. We're not going back to the Old Testament where I have to approach God through another person. I got a ton of rules I got to keep. There's always been a group of people who understood from the New Testament that you are the temple of God. That when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was available to every single human being who would embrace the message of Jesus. That you are the temple of God and that God dwells in you. And when we gather in Jesus' name, we're part of this thing that we call the church. And that has momentum. And the momentum was initially fueled on the opening day in the city of Jerusalem through the power of the Holy Spirit. There have always been people who got that. One of the things I love about our church is you get that. Oh, sometimes it's easy to lose sight momentarily. But I'm saying, generally speaking, we get that. It's why when someone is baptized, you cheer. We don't put an applause sign up. I, tell you, I don't know how you went back and watched the videos of the baptism a couple weeks ago. And uh, you cheer when you're coming in the water. You cheer when the video's on. You cheer when they leave. They're just cheering. It's like you can't contain yourselves. You're, it, I love that. It's why when you meet in groups, you understand that when you meet in a group around someone's kitchen table or in a living room or in a church room somewhere, wherever it happens to be, or at a coffee shop, you are the church, wherever you are. Whether you ever step foot, I'm going to say it, whether you ever step foot inside this building again, when you gather with other believers, you are the church. Your gathering is the church. We gather together to bring our gifts to the table to serve, to serve the poor, We gather together to go on a mission trip to serve the least of these. We move together as a church. And every time you serve in our children's ministry or in our youth ministry or in the parking lot or at the coffee bar or in the tech room or on the stage or on the cleaning team, you serve as the church. And there have always been, there's always been, and there always will be a group of people who understand it's not location, it's not style, it's not 
approach. It's not philosophy. It's not a time slot on a Sunday morning. It's about gathering around this one simple yet profound idea that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He died on the cross, rose on the third day, and this is a message for the entire, the entire, the entire world, uh, even people in my life. So I don't know what comes to your mind or what you feel when you hear the word church, but I hope as a result of our time together that maybe it just, maybe it tweaks that a little bit. Maybe it gives us a little bit of clarity as to what Jesus launched the church to do and to be. I hope as a result, maybe the last few minutes, that you'll go read some church history. Read about the first century church. Read about where we went off track. Read about what God is doing in the church today and through the church today. And I hope as a result of that, that you'll never ever allow yourself to slide back into thinking it's a place, that it's a location, that it's a time slot on a certain day of the week. But for the rest of our lives, for the rest of our lives as a church, that we'll understand that the church is a movement that was started by Jesus. We get to be a part of it. The church is a movement with extraordinary momentum. A couple thousand years now. And I hope for the rest of our lives that together as a lo this local church, as a local gathering, as a local ecclesia that will be on task and on mission with what happened on that very first day. So it's the beginning of a new year, at, and, and I want to say a couple things uh, that pertain to us at Faith Community, just about, um, and, I'm, and I'm really done. Um, I want to say a couple things about church membership. The New Testament talks about us being members of the body, but I really don't think it's referring to membership as we mean membership, okay? That's not my bait where in Romans, and Paul talks about the members, we're all members of the same body. I don't believe that's a biblical basis for church membership. Just going to tell you that. Um, when we say membership, um, it's, it's more of an, like that official joining the church thing. It's, it's more of a cultural thing than it is a scriptural thing. It's not anti-scriptural. It's just not necessarily mandated in the Bible. Um, that's why we don't emphasize it a lot. But then again, we do believe it's important. Um, it's an important and effective way to, to make sure that individuals who make up our church are on track with our mission, our mission and so that individuals know what to expect of their church and the church leadership knows what to expect of members and all that. So that's kind of why we do it. And we don't say a lot about it here. Um, we do have membership and we have a membership covenant. We renew the covenant every year so in January. So on the table by the door as you leave today, you'll find the 2019 covenant. Pick one up, read it through, send your questions to me or Pastor Bob. When you're ready, cut off the right side of the triple fold, put your name on it and leave that part in the basket right there on the table. The rest of it's for you to keep so you can be reminded of what it is that you've entered into covenant with us. Because we believe there are benefits to officially being a member of your local church. And I'm not going to take time to talk about that today. I could if you'd like me to. I've got notes right here. I could go for probably 40 more minutes if you want me to. But what I would, my case for membership, um, I would encourage you to uh, hop on our podcast or our media player and go to January 8th, 2017. I spent an entire morning talking about membership. So if this is a new conversation for you and you're like, well, I don't, I think I've ever done that. I don't know what the big deal is or why you would do that or what is this obligating me to. Um, listen to that. It, and if you use the Bible app, there's a link there. My prayer for us is that we'll always be an ecclesia, a gathering that's right in the center of what God is doing, what he's doing through the church in our community, in our individual lives, and around the world. We call it the kingdom of God. But in order, in order for us to be effective in our mission, this mission that we didn't come up with, Jesus gave it to us. We've got to be healthy. We have to be healthy as a body. We have to be healthy as individuals. We have to be healthy as households. We just have to be healthy in every way. And when it comes to matters of health in the church, we tend to focus most of our teaching, in, at least in the North American church, we tend to focus most of our teaching on spiritual health and uh, sometimes on relational health. And sometimes we even talk about money and financial health. Um, Starting in a couple weeks, next time I'm at the podium, uh, I want to take some time to talk about emotional health. And uh, I don't think these things should be as compartmentalized as we've made them. I want to talk about how our emotional health as individuals affects the overall emotional health of our church and how the emotional health of our church impacts the effectiveness of us fulfilling our mission. We're going to talk about how it affects our ability to connect with one another inside the church and how it affects our ability to relate to those outside the church. So. That's fair, you've been warned. So it's gonna, this is, that's where we're going. It's new territory for me. Um, it, honestly, a topic we've never really talked about on purpose in a Sunday morning setting. So 
buckle in because we're going to see where it takes us. I hope you come with an open spirit and an open heart uh, to what God might show us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I can only imagine what it must have been like to be there on opening day in Jerusalem, experiencing that. Here we are a couple thousand years later, gathered in the name of Jesus as continuing part of that story. We're here today because we believe that Jesus died for our sins, he rose from the dead, he has reestablished our relationship with the Father, and he is who he said he was. God, I pray that for us as a local church, that we would always be a part of that group that's right in the center of what you are doing in the world. That the kingdom of God would not be some abstract thing that we can't get our minds around, but that we would be very aware of where you're at work and our place in that. God, I, I feel a burden, and I know a lot of us in this church too, to the next generation. I pray for our teenagers who are gathered in the queue right now. I pray for our elementary kids and Surge and our preschoolers and Jammers and our little babies in Treasure Bay. I pray that when we hand the church off to them, that it would be in a better condition, better positioned, healthier, more effective than it is today. pray we'd be struck with the awesomeness of that responsibility. I pray that we'd be extraordinary stewards of the ecclesia that you've called, this gathering of believers who gather in your name. We're humbled that we get to be a part of what you are doing for your glory in Jesus' name. Listen to this. For the sake of